0: This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI TV. Good morning. It's Friday, November 25th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Mike. Let's hit those horns and go. Coming up on the show today, we have our weekly news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Today, we share our thoughts on the revelations that came out of the final week of the Emergencies Act Inquiry. We look at two new proposed amendments for gun control in Canada, and we consider the country's new climate adaptation strategy. But first, we begin with our top stories. The Emergencies Act inquiry is set to wrap up today. Yesterday, we heard from Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland, and she said that the protest had the potential to escalate quickly.
1: I felt that Canada was sort of a powder cake, and that you could have a violent physical confrontation at any point.
0: She also said that the protests represented a threat to international relations.
1: The longer it went on, the greater threat that the U.S. would lose faith in us and our trading relationship would be irreparably damaged. The longer it went on, the greater the threat that foreign investors would write off Canada.
0: Freeland explained that invoking the act was ultimately necessary.
1: I would have preferred not to have had to do this. But in my mind, I weigh that against what I really believe is the tens, hundreds of thousands of Canadian jobs and families that we protected.
0: We also heard from Democracy Fund lawyer Alan Honor, who questioned Freeland on the need for the act. So I put it to you, Minister, that the federal government had to show the USA that they were in control, and that explains why the Emergencies Act was invoked, despite the fact that, for example, the Ambassador Bridge was cleared and open to traffic.
1: No, I wouldn't agree with that characterization.
0: Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is set to testify today, and Brenda Molina Navidad tells us what to expect.
2: Trudeau's testimony will cap six weeks of hearings at the Public Order Emergency Commission, which has already heard from seven Liberal ministers about why the Emergencies Act was used in response to the weeks-long demonstrations in downtown Ottawa and at several border crossings. Ministers say the emergency declaration on February 14th was necessary because of risks to Canada's security, economy and international reputation. Trudeau is likely to face questions about the legal advice his cabinet received on how to interpret the definition of a threat to the security of Canada that the Emergencies Act relies on. The Commissioner is expected to deliver a final report to Parliament by early next year. Brenda Molina-Navidad, The Canadian Press.
0: And WE WILL DIVE DEEPER INTO THE Emergencies ACT ONCE WE START CHATTING WITH OUR NEWS PANEL, BUT uh, WE CARRY ON TO INTERNATIONAL NEWS WHERE SHELLING CONTINUES IN KYROSON AS THE WAR IN UKRAINE RAGES ON. BEN THOMAS FILES THIS REPORT.
3: IN HIS NIGHTLY ADDRESS, UKRAINIAN PRESIDENT VLADIMIR
0: Zelensky CALLS IT THE REVENGE OF THOSE WHO LOST. RUSSIA CONTINUES TO POUND KYROSON, THE SOUTHERN CITY RECAPTURED BY UKRAINIAN FORCES JUST TWO WEEKS AGO. Witnesses describe at least five killed Thursday, but many more wounded. AP reporters
3: capturing images of survivors drenched in their own blood.
0: Victor Anastasiev says his house was hit by two shells. His medics
3: carried him to an ambulance with a
0: horrific leg wound. But hospitals in Kherson have been without power and water. A situation in cities across the country, including the capital Kyiv, with people filling bottles wherever they can, including collecting rainwater from drain pipes. I'm Ben Thomas. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg has vowed to continue to support Ukraine. Allies are providing
4: unprecedented military support. And I expect foreign ministers will also agree to step up non lethal support.
0: We go now from, the, uh, from NATO to the UN, which is urging China to release Uyghurs being detained. Inez de la Cotera has more.
5: A United Nations committee is calling on China to release those being detained in its Xinjiang region. It's also suggesting victims be provided with remedies and reparation. Earlier this year, a report from the U.N.'s human rights chief found China's treatment of Uyghurs and other Muslims could amount to crimes against humanity. China denies any wrongdoing. Inez as ABC News, at the Foreign Desk.
0: And finally, it's Black Friday. But shopping habits may be shaped by inflation and more disciplined spending habits. Donna Warder has a story.
6: Rising prices for food, rent, gasoline and other household costs have taken a toll on shoppers and many are reluctant to spend unless there's a big sale. They're also more selective about what they buy. Some shoppers are also dipping into their savings and are turning increasingly to buy now, pay later services such as Afterpay and PayPal's six months no interest. Some pandemic habits are sticking around. Major retailers, including Walmart and Target, again closed their stores on Thanksgiving Day. And many moved away from doorbusters, the deeply marked-down items offered for a limited time that drew crowds. Instead, the discounted items are available throughout the month, on Black Friday or the holiday weekend. I'm Donna Warder.
0: And now we move to our daily poll, where yesterday I asked you, what is your favorite thing about visiting national parks? And it was pretty split. The, uh, 42% of you said the wildlife. 42% of you said the trails. 8% of you said camping. And then the other 8% of you said other. This is a pretty, pretty good split. You know, you want to go see the trails, maybe catch some wildlife. That's, that's good. So today, as I mentioned, it is Black Friday. So I want to ask you at home, do you plan on taking advantage of some of the deals for Black Friday? yes you're you're planning on shopping getting some deals, whether it's online in store no, you have no plans you you don't wanna uh buy anything you're you're kind of being more responsible uh financially or you're undecided. you're not sure yet maybe you might check out see if there's anything worth picking up but uh yeah, it remains to be seen i i i have been pretty clear i'm I'm planning on doing some shopping myself uh hopefully you know after the The show today, I can uh, check out some of the deals and see if there's anything that uh, is really uh, new or different that I wasn't seeing before. But let's bring in Mike Ross and get his take on this. Mike, do you plan on doing any Black Friday shopping today?
7: Uh, I do. I've already done a little bit uh, in uh, booking some travel uh, for the month of December. So we're looking forward to that and got some really good deals there. But uh, yeah, today specifically, I'm looking at a new tablet. Mm-hmm. And so I've been, uh, been sort of popping in and uh, on different websites and checking out different uh, deals that are out there. And there are some to be had. So yeah, I will absolutely be taking advantage of it today.
0: Well, and that's the thing with the Black Friday, as you mentioned, you know, you're already taking advantage of some travel deals. Like it, it seems like it runs the gambit, the the types of sales and the types of things on sale. Really, uh, everywhere you look, be, uh, different stores, different companies are involved in Black Friday. So, you know, as long as you can think, it's like, oh, I have to pay money for this. Maybe there might be a Black sale, a Black Friday sale available on this.
7: Yeah, and I'll tell you, over the years, we've all sort of seen or heard of some of the, uh, the the just the horrible incidents of uh of violence and trampling and, and pushing and shoving at, at stores for some of the deals that are out there um but i've also been on the other side of that black friday shopping experience having uh, done so in new york city a couple of times and I got great deals on those days on uh, winter jackets. You know, Ramia was talking about it uh, earlier uh, on uh, on the show this week about using Black Friday sales to get some of those sort of winter necessities. If you if you're looking for something new, whether it's the boots or a new hat, a new jacket, and I got tremendous deals on some great winter coats. And I'm talking like a four hundred dollar. Really fancy uh, sort of dress winter coat that was four hundred bucks. I got it on sale for ninety dollars uh, in uh, in New York City. So uh, there are deals to be had out there, and it doesn't have to be for you know luxurious items. You can get good deals on real important uh, necessary items uh, for the season ahead.
0: Absolutely, and uh, likewise, I remember. I can't believe it. It was ten years ago, but I remember being down in Pittsburgh right around Black Friday, and I, I couldn't believe the the level of deals that we were able to to get when we were down there. But let's thank you uh, for now, Mike. We'll we'll check in with you in a couple of minutes. But uh, let's first ask Dan Panamondo. Dan, are you planning on doing any? Shopping this uh, Black Friday?
3: I did a little bit already. Like, you know, everyone knows you don't really have to wait for Black Friday the day because so many people are starting the deal super, super early. Uh, I just bought a video game. I mean, that's probably all I'm going to... That's not true, actually. Actually. My cell phone plan—I've been meaning to upgrade it or get a different plan for a long time. I always go over on my data, and I'm sick of it, of my inflated bills. So I'm like a lot of carriers have, have um, deals on plans, so I might look into that. So maybe this weekend I'll kind of switch my plan. But I always look—I always look. I love looking at the deals at the more expensive stuff: TVs, home receivers, and, and whatever. And more often than not, like the discount is just not enough for me to like jump in at whatever the price is so it's it's more so like the small stuff games movies entertainment stuff like that that i usually kind of pounce on for black friday so i did a tiny bit i'm probably done but i'm not gonna go crazy
0: well as i can say like you know i'm I'm looking at phones and phone plants as well that today is the day or this weekend is the day I don't think the deals are going to be any better this year, so it's certainly worth checking out. But I agree with you. Sometimes you, you look at certain products, it's like, okay, well, you know, you you save maybe fifty dollars. It's not much of a yeah, not much of a deal. Not yeah. worth kind of jumping in and and getting crazy about it. But uh, no, that's great. You can you can take advantage of some of them. And so, thank you, Dan. And for you at home, we want to hear from you. We want you guys to participate in our poll, so you can vote online at on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. or on Twitter at Accessible Media. Let us know, are you planning on doing some Black Friday shopping? So for now, we'll head back to Mike Ross who has our national weather update. It's your AMI
7: national weather update from Environment Canada. We begin in St. John's, Newfoundland. Mainly cloudy today with a chance of some some showers or some flurries and blowing snow. Your high is plus two. To Halifax, increasing cloudiness today with a high of eight and a wind chill of minus eight this morning. Montreal, periods of freezing rain, switching to rain this afternoon. Your high is six degrees. Ottawa, also getting some freezing rain and then rain in the afternoon. Your high is plus five. In Toronto, cloudy with a chance of some showers. The high today, minus or rather plus eight. Geez, I don't want to... I want to get all negative on everybody there. High is plus eight in Toronto. Let's go to Thunder Bay next. A mix of sun and cloud. Your high is plus three. The wind chill, though, as you head out today is minus eight. In Winnipeg, it'll be mainly sunny with a high of six degrees. The wind chill this morning, minus nine. Saskatoon has a mix of sun and cloud today with a high of six degrees. In Calgary, a mix of sun and cloud. And the temperature will fall to plus five later this afternoon. In Edmonton, increasing cloudiness through the day. Maybe a chance that the sun peaks out just a little bit. You've got a high of plus five and a wind chill of minus 13. Let's go to Yellowknife next. Periods of snow ending near noon. Your temperature minus 10. The wind chill minus 14. And into Vancouver. Rain ending in the afternoon. Your high today is nine degrees. And in Victoria, B.C., also some rain ending through the midday. And you have a high of nine degrees
0: as well. And that is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Mike. We'll be checking in with you later in the show. But coming up next, we kick off our weekly news panel and share our thoughts on the final week of the Emergencies Act Inquiry. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you live on AMI TV. It's Friday, so that means we assemble our weekly news <clears> panel. <throat> Let's welcome in our panelists, jo- uh, Joita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Good morning, Joita.
8: Good morning, Alex. Good I, to see I you. was
0: getting tongue-tied. I, I was blending the first name, last name together, and good morning, Michelle.
9: Yeah, I, I, I kind of like the mashup. Hi, Alex. Yeah. How are you?
0: <laughs> I'm I'm doing okay. I'm 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 making it through. It's Friday, so. Let's start with the Emergencies Act. All week, I've been sharing sound clips from the inquiry, highlighting some of the key moments and as various ministers and federal leaders spoke. We heard from Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland earlier in uh, segment one, and we will hear from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau later today. So while we don't have his testimony to refer to, I wanted to get your thoughts on the week so far. So, Joita, I'll start with you. Like, what have you made of this week's testimonies from the inquiry,
8: I think it was very interesting. There's a couple of things really leapt out uh, for me. I think the whole issue of economic security took greater prominence in the inquiry than I had previously anticipated. We heard from both Christian Freeland as well as the Clerk of the Privy Council that Canada's economic security was at stake as a result of the blockades and the disruptions brought about by the convoy, and. Uh, they interpret that as being part and parcel of national security. However, if you look at the definition of national security under the CSIS Act, economic security isn't really mentioned. But you hear Christopher Freeland say very forcefully that economic security was Very much part and parcel of her judgment and her consideration in determining whether or not to make use of the emergencies. act, As you heard in the clip in segment one, she said, you know, I didn't really want to... Um, evoke or invoke the uh, Emergencies Act. But setting that aside, I felt that tens, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of jobs would be protected. She's very. She says in that clip that she was worried about investor confidence disappearing, uh, the impact on foreign investors, that we would be seen as unreliable <clears throat> by the U.S. And then the there would be trade disruptions, which could, could lead to long-lasting impacts. And all of that is really interesting to contemplate because... Uh, At no point is anyone really saying that, hey, we were worried about the government being overthrown. You would think that would be the more typical definition of national security. So it does raise a question for me about what the definition of national security is and whether economic security, in fact, falls into that definition.
0: Yeah, Michelle, we'll go to you now. What what really stood out to you?
8: There were a few things actually
9: that stood out, and this was one of them. And I actually personally think it's kind of smart for them to pivot in this direction in terms of emphasizing the economic risk. Whether or not it meets the definition or not, they're probably going to have an easier time presenting a case on economic grounds. And they've been able to produce communications from U.S. government officials who were raising concerns about this. They've been able to quantify things with dollar figures about how much trade was lost in a given day, and we're talking billions of dollars. So they're able to make a pretty strong case in those ways. We've heard earlier in the inquiry that some of the other reasons, the the more traditional reasons one would expect to invoke this act, might be a little more difficult to nail down. Uh, we've had police forces saying that they didn't think it was necessary, others saying they think it did. We had the head of CSIS saying that even though it didn't technically meet the definition of national security according to CSIS, he did support its use. So it all gets kind of muddled and confusing in that way. And adding to the mix is the other thing that stood out for me, and that was. Attorney General David Lametti's testimony. Uh, it, was, it was pretty colorful. There were some interesting insights into conversations between him and other ministers, which is always fun to get a peek behind those curtains. We don't get those very often. But what really jumped out at me there is that he is, he's citing solicitor-client privilege and why he cannot explain the legal basis for invoking the Emergencies Act, which is kind of the central question of the whole inquiry. So mm-hmm. that, to me, is very interesting as well. Um, and I don't, Honestly, no. Uh, Justin Trudeau is going to face a difficult day of of grilling, I have no doubt. It's going to be very interesting. We're expecting protesters to show up. Uh, We know that won't make for the friendliest environment for him to navigate in this context. Um, But I really, in light of the fact that David Lametti has laid some groundwork for not providing some of the explanations this inquiry is seeking, I really don't know how much is going to change given the Prime Minister's testimony today.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree. I thought it was very interesting that... He was very uh, forthright with a lot of the answers, and then, oh, what is the actual legal advice that led to the decision? Well, I can't, uh, I can't disclose that. Mm-hmm. I, I can't actually give the rationale, the whole purpose for uh, this inquiry, what we really thought, and what was the motivation behind actually doing it. But I also agree with you, Jawita. I thought it's very interesting that early on we all saw it from a macro view, uh, micro view, with the focus on Ottawa, and and a lot of people, especially even before the inquiry started, that, that was kind of the focus of what we all saw the Emergencies Act use being applied to because this was locking down the the seat of our, our federal government. You know, this had been going on for weeks. I was really getting the attention. But as you kind of peel back the, the layers you're, you're hearing from, the more you go up the ranks in terms of, of the voices that we're hearing from, they, they go from, okay, the Ottawa uh, situation to now, okay, we're talking about the closure and the blockade at the uh, Ambassador Bridge, and then also the situation in Coots, Alberta, and and really pointing to those two situations as key factors for why the act was necessary. And mm-hmm. uh, you also mentioned to the Jesus director saying, well, by the current definition of the act, no, this doesn't necessarily qualify, but I still, in my opinion, believe that it was val- uh, valid to to invoke it. So... Has has there been one um, testimony this week that kind of has stood out amongst the rest that have uh, taken place? Michelle, we'll start with you.
9: Yeah, for me it was Lametti. Um, that to me was is really trying to get at some of the central questions that this inquiry is trying to pose. Uh, it was the most illuminating in terms of the nitty-gritty, but also the most confounding in terms of the lack of response on, on that really crucial question that I think we're going to see posed to the Prime Minister today. Of why was it done? On what basis did your government make this decision? What kind of advice guided your thinking on this? We're not going to get that advice. It's pretty clear that we're not going to find out what that was. And so to me, his testimony was uh, has been the linchpin of the week thus far, but today
8: could change that.
0: Absolutely. Joita, what about you?
8: Well, I I mean, I talked quite I I talked at length about Krista Freeland, and I think it was very interesting to to hear her say what she had to say. Um, At some point, she got tearful and seem to have been quite emotional about the whole thing. But yeah, I agree with uh, Michelle. I think David Lamedi's, um testimony and the things he chose not to talk about are very interesting uh, as well. And I think Michelle's done a really good job of covering that, so I won't go over the same ground. So I think what that does is kind of sets... Uh, some expectations or maybe even lowers expectations around what we might end up hearing from the prime minister this later this afternoon in terms of his testimony so you know that was the central question being what was the legal rationale for evoking the emergencies act and we just don't seem to have a clear answer from the person you would have assumed would be best placed to provide that information to us.
0: Do you feel like we're going to hear anything new from Justin Trudeau? I I, I kind of agree with you, Jawita, Where I, I feel like expectations are being lowered because we've heard from all these other high-ranking federal officials and, and ministers that these are all uh, kind of people in key positions. They they've shared a lot of key information, but they've also skirted away from from the real pressing questions. I don't think we're going to hear the answers to those from. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau today. Uh, do you think we're going to hear, uh, Joita, we'll start with you.
8: Um, I don't know if you'll hear anything drastically different. I mean, I will, of course, be pleased if I'm wrong and we get some clear answers. Uh, we've gotten a lot of conflicting information about whether the Emergencies Act should have been evoked. Uh, but I think um, Trudeau will get asked about why existing Uh, tools and existing powers, say policing uh, powers, were not enough. And what it is that actually prompted the use of the Emergencies Act in this situation. I think uh, it would have been an interesting experiment to consider whether, you know, Uh, if it had just been a protest confined to Ottawa and we did not have Coots, Alberta in the picture or Ambassador Bridge in Windsor, whether the Emergencies Act would have ever been evoked. um, I think... We'll be hearing a lot of what advice he got from the director of CISIS, uh, who said that the convoy protest did not meet the, the the national the definition of national security under the CSIS Act, as I think we mentioned a couple of times already. But uh, that's also the same definition used under the Emergencies Act, by the way. But he advised to Trudeau to to implement uh, the Emergencies Act nonetheless, and. Um, We would also have heard uh, by now from from Brenda Lucky, who said that the police hadn't actually used all the tools, that uh, that the RCMP, pardon me, had not used all the tools that were available to them or were at their disposal. So I think Trudeau's going to get asked a few tough questions and get pressed about why it is that uh, he did not lean more on the RCMP and and give them the leeway to use the tools they already had. Um, I think... Uh, The other thing that we might hear Trudeau get asked about is questions or concerns about his personal safety uh because many politicians were threatened uh or or received threats during the the convoy um and there might be some questions asked about uh, how safe he felt uh whether the uh the, per- the, the the personal threats might have been a factor as well uh in 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 deciding whether or not to evoke the emergencies act so I don't think you're going to get something that's drastically different from what we've heard. Uh, I speculate that that would not be the case, but I suspect you're going to. He's going to get pressed on a lot of the things that we've we've been we've been hearing about all week.
0: Uh, Michelle, I'll give you the final word on this. Do you think we're going to hear anything new or groundbreaking from uh, Trudeau? And and then on top of that, has this week changed your perspective at all on on the regime?
9: Yeah, um, I, I, I'm not going to get too deep into the personal weeds in terms of what I think, but no, I will say that the inquiry has not really shifted my thinking on that front very much in terms of Trudeau himself. uh, I I would be a bit surprised if he broke some truly new ground, although there is always the possibility that we're going to see some text or email exchange that would prove illuminating. Those have been really, really interesting throughout this inquiry, including this past week. So even though he himself has gotten fairly good at sticking to the script and staying on message, um, I expect that to remain to a certain degree, but we'll see. I mean, it it really could go either way. And like I said, there is going to be a a more uh, confrontational environment today. There are protesters expected to be in the gallery, those who were opposed to or are opposed to his government and have a deep personal dislike. So like Joeda, I'll be interested to see about talk about his safety and how that comes up and also how the presence of the protesters influences the proceedings today. And I will end with a little bit of fun facts for those who are in the mood for a bit of Justin Trudeau whiplash. A few hours after his appearance today, on uh, before the inquiry, an episode featuring him of Canada's Drag Race will be airing. Uh. <laughs> For those who want to <laughs> you know. change of pace from our Prime minister. Yes,
0: yeah, so, I mean, you know, it's 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 hard to go. You can go serious, and then you can go very light. So it's
5: uh, we've got it, it, it all here. In yeah,
0: <laughs> it, exactly. So uh, thank you both for uh, for enlightening us with this uh, conversation. We'll leave it there. But coming up next, there are two new proposed amendments for gun control in Canada. We'll we'll chat about those. This is now News Panel on AMI TV. <laughs> Welcome back to the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Meith, and I'm joined by Michelle McQuigge and Joita Gupta. Let's address our next topic. Debates around gun control seem to have coincided with a new news of more tragic mass shootings in the U.S., both here and then there's also some uh, in our country as well. Uh, this last week, two new proposed amendments to gun controls have stirred up a debate again in this country. The first proposed amendment would see the definition of an assault rifle added to a bill that was first introduced last year. The amendment proposes to ban a quote a firearm that is a rifle or shotgun that is capable of discharging center fire ammunition in a semi-automatic manner that is designed to accept detachable cartridge magazines with a capacity greater than five cartridges of the type in which the firearm was originally designed. Very, very wordy. Essentially, it's, it's uh, 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 proposing to ban almost all semi-automatic rifles. The other proposal uh, provision will allow mm-hmm. anyone to apply to a judge for an emergency order to prohibit someone who might cause harm, such as a stalker or abuser, from possessing firearms for up to 30 days. The identity of the person making the application may be kept confidential, and the matter can proceed in court without the gun order, uh, owner present. So, Michelle, this was your topic that you brought forth, two very big uh, uh, proposed amendments. Where did you want to go with this?
9: Yeah, well, thanks for, for laying out the, <laughs> the technical Very
0: definition. Very a, wordy. I, I, yeah, It is very technical. It's very <laughs> yes. in the
9: weeds, and, and there's even more to it than that. But basically, the crux of the matter is, The definition of semiotic weapons has not necessarily been codified in law before, and there has been a push to do so, and that is one of the things that the government is hoping to do now with this gun control measure that they're trying to get passed. Um, Big surprise, it's running into fierce opposition, uh, primarily from the Conservatives who feel that the government is coming after hunters and sportsmen and those who maintain guns for lawful reasons. And it's going along fairly predictable partisan lines that way. The other amendment is also interesting because it has uh, victims groups raising concerns, saying, you know what, this might sound great on paper, but it actually is going to potentially undermine the people it serves to protect. Uh, people who are in domestic violence situations or in imminent danger don't have the time or resources to go to court necessarily. Uh, that the, that itself is an act that could put them at additional risk. Uh, we know that domestic abusers uh, that during times when there's efforts to leave or, or to intervene in their behavior, that's when the risk is highest for the women and children and others and vulnerable people in those situations. So it's a controversial amendment uh, on top of an already thorny bill that's being difficult to, to discuss and to pass. And yet it jumped out at me because we are having these conversations here and we're further down the road in terms of potentially implementing some meaningful gun control for those who feel that way. Uh, then, then we have been in the States where we see that this is an issue that just never, ever truly gets put to bed in any meaningful way. Uh, there've been a lot of mass shootings in the U S recently, of course, especially in the the past week, even last weekend, there was a really wretched, uh, shooting at a, a nightclub that was perceived to be a hate crime. So it's very topical, um, and i thought it would be time to check in a bit on where we stand here in canada as we have some different different but equally uh thorny conversations around this issue.
0: Absolutely because uh, and and some of the uh, the responses i i read from these amendments especially from the uh, conservative uh, parties and especially those in alberta and saskatchewan have basically said they they're just trying to get rid of guns altogether they're trying to ban all guns. now mm-hmm. that's based on it's on worth the information noting- yeah you know, Go ahead. Really
9: quickly, it's worth noting that the premiers of those three provinces you named have all now voiced their, formally voiced their opposition in a joint statement about this. So it's not just the residents of those provinces, they're getting official pushback from the leaders now.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And and so, Joita, I, I want to uh, go to you on this and find out, do you feel like there was, this has always been a long-standing debate. Do you feel there is now an appetite to really tackle this head-on with this amendment that the both- Politically and uh, from a public standpoint, that people are are ready to take this and change gun laws in Canada?
8: Um, it's an excellent question. And we know that we've had uh, in recent memory some very horrific mass shootings in Canada, the 2020 Nova Scotia shooting, the 2018 Toronto Danforth shooting. Uh, also in 2018, the Fredericton mass shooting. And I think there has been more interest, both from politicians and the public, to see greater gun control. But that doesn't necessarily shift the balance or change um, what's actually going to happen here. Uh, There's still a powerful gun lobby at work, uh, not as well-funded as the gun lobby in the U.S., but nonetheless uh, quite an immutable and immovable force um uh, you've still got hunters of course being a vocal minority um i was looking at a poll conducted by Angus Reid in may 2022 so it's a couple months old now and according to the poll about 60% of canadians surveyed said that gun violence was increasing in canada and even so in that same poll only about 44% of Canadians say that gun control needs to be stronger. So is there an appetite for change? Obviously, those who are in favor of greater gun control will continue to lobby for that. Uh, but it doesn't really seem to be translating, uh, the concern for uh, of mass shootings doesn't really seem to be translating into broad-based consensus that we need to make some changes here because you've got a lot of people uh, either indifferent and you've got a very vocal minority and it's not just a minority as michelle pointed out now you've got the premiers of at least three provinces officially opposing it and that is not an insignificant obstacle
0: yeah well and then uh this goes back to the same struggles we see in so many different issues. This is a, a federal uh, a bill that they're trying to, to pass, and then you have the provincial jurisdictions who are, are already uh, saying they, they are going to challenge us, and if they need to, they will go to court over uh, these new laws. So you're, you're getting that divide and, and that separation between federal and provincial ideologies.
8: If you don't mind me, but there's also another uh, important divide where I think uh, we need to consider the rural urban divide in a conversation about gun control. Mm Uh, whereby the proponents, uh, whereby those who are against gun control are often in rural areas, whereas the victims of gun violence are often in the urban poor, in urban poor neighborhoods. And I think that division is really one of the re. And, and of course, they're not. Not only are they in different places politically, but they're in different places geographically. And this is a big country, so they're never really meeting. Not even in the in the most sort of. Uh, you know, just in the in the most obvious sense of the term, which is they're not ever sitting down face to face. So uh, that that is, I think, a big big issue as well to consider, apart from the federal provincial issue that you brought up.
0: Absolutely, and uh, Michelle, I want to go back to you because you did mention this a bit um, uh, when we were talking about the the red flag provision, the second one that that could mm-hmm. uh, see uh, people who feel threats to their life go to court and and get. Uh, uh, a 30-day uh, ban on uh, someone who may be deemed as a threat to have uh, a weapons taken away or a, a ban on them having weapons. Do you feel mm-hmm. that the the vulnerable groups and the groups that would be affected? You mentioned they did have their they they were vocalizing their their opposition to this this uh, amendment. Uh, ironically, most people would think they would this would be something that they would be in favour of. Do you think that they've they've had enough of their voice heard and considered with this provision?
9: Um, I will say that jury's a little bit out on this one. They absolutely have been very much involved. By and large, they're quite supportive of the government's planned uh, efforts on this front, and they largely like this bill. I do feel that by and large they've been heard, but this issue came up as part of the clause-by-clause clause review process, which is always an important time when passing government legislation to make some tweaks. Uh, The fact that we're even discussing this suggests to me that the message is being heard. This is a, a, a lobby that has gotten organized, that has been able to get this issue flagged and discussed. And to me, this is a classic example of something that a lot of us who navigate accessibility circles will be familiar with. Mm-hmm. Something that sounds great on paper, but it really takes a lived experience to be like, you know what, like, yes, that sounds fine in theory, but the practical reality is very different and here's what it actually looks like. So the reason the jury's is out is because I will be interested to see how the government responds to these critiques about this particular clause now that they've been raised. Uh, if they decide to take some meaningful action, then I will probably come down with an unequivocal yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but for now, I like to sort of see and wait and see how this plays out but i will say that it's been quite evident that uh certain advocacy groups who who are very much in favor of, of gun control i'm thinking specifically of the group of survivors of the Ecole Polytechnique massacre one of the worst in our history uh groups like them um several other women's shelter groups have had some pretty prominent exposure and and say and input into this so I don't feel the issue has been ignored. Uh, I will, though, be interested to see how they deal with some finer points now that they've had a chance to, to hear about it. Mm.
0: Joita, you, you had talked about the, uh, uh, a bit of the divide. Do you feel like there is a nonpartisan, non-divisive uh, way that we can have these types of conversations, that we can have everyone come to the table and have a meaningful conversation?
8: It, look, this, as I said before, it is an interesting divide. Um, just if you, if you allow me a minute to talk about the vulnerable groups, uh, whether they've been adequately consulted. Certainly we've heard from women's uh, groups in some detail. But we haven't actually heard from, as I mentioned, the urban poor community. And that's often mm-hmm. the group that's most affected by gun violence is the victims of gun violence. And that's a voice, at least as far as I can tell, that's conspicuously absent.
5: Great so, point.
8: So, mm-hmm. you know, we know uh, that there are some entrenched sides here. The people who are advocating against gun uh, control are tend to be um, uh, in rural areas, hunters, and sometimes farmers. And, of course, those who are the victims are, in, uh, are often the urban poor. Uh, we haven't really even heard from cities or community activists, and I think the role of the city is uh, is really important. Um, so is there a way to reach a nonpartisan solution? Um it's an interesting it's an interesting idea to contemplate because really all evidence points to the fact that you've got two very entrenched sides here and they're not going to meet in the middle either politically and obviously not geographically however uh you could really if you were creative think about um finding ways to broach the difference or breach the difference. Um, You could have a way of allowing rural people to use guns for hunting purposes, for example, uh, while introducing greater restrictions in cities. I'm just, you know, uh, spitballing ideas here. The problem with that is you don't really have a way of enforcing that in Canada. We have freedom of movement. That means guns can freely flow or move between rural and urban areas and even between provinces, as far as I know. So I can't really see how you might implement a a situation where you have looser gun control regulations in in rural areas, which allow for legal gun ownership and maybe tighter regulations in the city where, you know, no one's hunting and no one has a farm. I just can't seem to find a way where you could logically find a consensus. And given that the issue is highly polarizing, as I've alluded to in the past, um, I don't know if we'll ever really arrive at a consensus here. I feel like it's one of those issues where one is eternally sort of looking for a solution that nobody will really be happy with. Yeah.
5: Yeah.
0: Michelle, I'll give you the final word on this topic.
8: Yeah, I'll make this quick, but I, I, I tend to agree that a,
9: a true consensus position will be very difficult to arrive at. Even even broad spectrum satisfaction, I think, will be hard to land on. It's worth noting that the Liberal government is the one that has historically been the one that tries to thread the needle and find a middle course. And even now, we're seeing this where they're being attacked pretty hard from the right. The Conservatives are deeply opposed to this bill. The NDP, their ostensible allies, due to the confidence and supply agreement, they will, they will support this bill, but they're also saying it doesn't nearly go far enough. They would like to see more action. So, this, I think, is the best thing we're going to see in terms of someone trying to establish a middle course, and it's not going, it's not proving to be a very smooth ride. Very so, I good. suspect there's more of this to come.
0: Okay, perfect. Well, thank you both. We'll leave the conversation there and we'll head to break. But coming up next, we consider the country's new climate adaptation strategy. This is the NOW News Panel on AMI-TV. Welcome back to the Now News panel on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Mythe, in for Dave Brown, and I'm joined by Juwita Gupta and Michelle McQuigge. So now we have one more topic to discuss, and Canada has unveiled a new climate adaptation strategy, which includes new funding to help fight the effects of climate change. Emergency Preparedness Minister Bill Blair announced the new funding in PEI.
4: We will be investing another $1.6 billion over the next five years to build climate-resilient communities and to support a strong Canadian economy.
0: He says that the investment is to help the economy withstand environmental issues.
4: And right across the country, we know that our work must be tied to a resilient and strong economy. We have to make an economy that works for all Canadians and therefore it has to be resilient to climate change.
0: This strategy is set to serve as a blueprint for Canada's plan going forward, targeting various sectors, and will serve as a living document updated every five years. Now, Julia, this was your uh, topic, so I'll let you have first crack at this. Where did you want to go with this topic?
8: Well, I mean, there are some important um, and key takeaways that we can certainly dig into with this. It's an announcement, but we haven't really seen a lot of detail, and that's not entirely surprising, but uh, some important ground has nonetheless been covered. We've also just seen um, the COP27 summit uh, wrap up, so there might be some linkages there. and of course you know with climate change um it's one of those interesting things where i think a lot a lot of us really talk about how we might take action personally Uh, to try and mitigate the problem on a larger scale. So if we have time, there was a really interesting uh, conversation that some researchers have put forward about eliminating air miles as a way to tackle the climate change problem, just to end the show on a, well, to end the panel rather, on a lighter note. I don't want to scrap the last hour.
0: You're ending the show for you. (laughs) I still got another hour to do, but don't worry, we'll make sure to get to that because that is a a lighter one. Yes. But uh, Michelle, let's go to you. Like, what did you make of this announcement in, in Canada's new new plan?
9: Yeah, it's as with any of these announcements, it's interesting to kind of take a deeper dive. The, the banner headline of $1.6 sounds like a very significant investment, as indeed it is. It's a lot of money. Um, but when you look down at it, we're talking about, you know, a couple hundred million on one aspect, a few tens of millions on another. Money that undoubtedly will help and, and undoubtedly is needed, but that will only go so far. And the the big message here is trying to seek buy-in from other partners. Bill Blair had some other remarks along those lines talking about the need to have all orders of government step up the way the federal one just has to, to earmark some funds and get on board because a lot of the issues involving environment and climate change do fall under provincial jurisdictions. There is going to need to be some cooperation there. Mm -hmm. Um, I found it really interesting that Stephen Guilbeault, the environment minister, was supposed to present this plan. He was called away for a personal matter. So I did find it interesting as a piece of messaging that the federal emergency preparedness minister stepped up. That, to me, shifts a bit of direction in terms of how this issue is being viewed as not just an environmental one and his talk about the economy struck me as interesting as well in light of the the main gain to come out of the COP27 summit which was the fact that richer countries have agreed now to establish a fund to help some poor countries mitigate and, and adapt to climate change. There are, there are different concepts, there are different notions um, but that was really the main point of agreement that came out of that summit, even if a lot of other uh, crucial targets were not mentioned. Speaking of targets, this federal bill does not have concrete targets spelled out. It indicates that there will be some, but we don't have those numbers yet. So there's another big piece of that puzzle. That's going to be hard to really get our heads around its impact
5: until we know.
0: Absolutely. Well, this is one of those things As you mentioned, you know, he was presenting it in PEI. Uh, We all know PEI Mm -hmm. was struggling to recover after hurricane Fiona. Uh, I, I had a few uh, uh, friends of mine who were out there, who who were telling me about some of the the aftermath, the damage, and the long term. So emergency preparedness going forward to try to help mitigate uh, certain environmental uh, issues like that in the future, I think is kind of the direction. But yeah, you mentioned the breakdown as well in terms of the funding. We in in there some of the vague numbers. Okay, well here's uh, some money going to help uh, prevent uh, forest fires and how they're they're establishing neighborhoods around forested areas. Some for mapping flood, uh, flood mapping and, and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, some for infrastructure to help build more climate resilient homes. Very vague, positive sounding, but it's like, how is this actually going to be enacted is the big question. Joita, uh going back to you, do you think that because we just had, as uh, Michelle mentioned, COP27 wrapped up and there was this uh, this tie in of, of helping to have the richer company, uh, countries fund uh, the developing nations who are feeling the effects of uh, climate change. You, are these two plans almost kind of linked or, or a, a continuation of one another?
8: Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the Canadian adaptation, the climate adaptation strategy announced by Canada is um, perhaps acknowledging reality. And that reality is that extreme weather events have gotten more frequent, and they are becoming increasingly more devastating. Um, I think I remember reading somewhere—I can't remember where now—that uh, the ten, uh, the, the budget for dealing with emergency disasters, uh, budget oh, over yeah. ten years, has been already half spent, and mm-hmm. we're in a, we're in a tight situation. Uh, whether or not you agree with. Uh, pinning the argument uh, or making the argument in economic terms, that's neither here nor there. The point is we're seeing more floods, we're seeing more fires, we're seeing more heat waves, and Canadians are dying. And I think this uh, this adaptation strategy is addressing those vulnerabilities. And as a person with a disability, uh, um, you're knowing that, the, that this population, people with disabilities, is especially vulnerable during extreme climate events, I can't say I disagree with that. Uh, Emphasis at all, Uh, and then you ask about uh, COP twenty seven and the loss and damage fund that they've established to help countries that are uh, vulnerable to uh, climate disaster. And I think, yeah, it's definitely drawing on the same sentiment that uh, countries that have been the largest polluters or have the largest carbon footprints should put money into a fund to uh, help or assist countries in the developing world who bear the brunt of climate change uh, and the impacts of climate change. And I think that's an important acknowledgement. Uh, it's not without its controversy. You, you know, you have the you have China, big economy, big carbon footprint could argue that, you know, we're off the hook. We're in fact a developing country. But you might have experts arguing otherwise, saying China's actually been quite responsible for the climate crisis. So you're going to have those fiddly things to figure out. But in general, the acknowledgement that the global south is more vulnerable to climate change and needs support is really important. You know, there was a a mention of the islands of of Tuvalu, uh, which they're now contemplating preserving as a digital nation because they're so worried that the island itself, the physical island, will disappear. So Mm. that's a really chilling reality to think about.
0: Absolutely. Now... Before we run out of time, you, you, you did tease. We want to kind of end things a bit lighter and not all doom and gloom. So, Michelle, I'll start with you on this. Researchers have kind of been posing the question of, should we eliminate incentives for flying, things like air miles and air rewards to fly, to help mitigate the desire to, to use air travel since it is so environmentally impactful? What do you make of this? Do you think we should do away with air miles?
9: Well, I, I think it's an interesting and creative solution. I, I would love to know, though, how much air mile travel actually accounts for travel. <laughs> Very bad. Um, I suspect that, the, that this will apply more to the the odd leisure traveler. Uh, when I suspect that you know corporate travel and all kinds of other factors. Uh, Entertainment industry travel, for instance, might account for more. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I wouldn't dismiss the idea. I just wonder how much impact it would have.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Joita, we'll go to you. You got about 25 seconds. Uh- Weigh in on this. Like, do you think should we get away with uh, air miles?
8: Uh, maybe it would have been a good idea 20 years ago, but the programs have really grown so that the majority of air uh, air miles are accumulated from sources other than air travel and can be spent mm-hmm. on things other than air travel. I don't know if you do anything other than enrage uh, consumers at this point because the program really it is a bit of, of a misnomer to call them air miles. It would it's it was an interesting idea and it certainly draws attention to the the fact that air travel is really bad for the climate. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it's really going to accomplish very much in the long term.
0: Yeah, I agree. You know, I I, I think, as Michelle pointed out, there are far more greater uh, causes in terms of who's using uh, the uh, who's who's using up more of the resources when it comes to flights. It, it's not really the main consumer. It's it's the wealthy, the businesses, those who have all those types of connections. That's all the time we have. Thank you so much, Michelle uh, McQuig and Joita Gupta, for joining me and chatting about three Really fascinating topics. I hope you both have a great weekend.
8: Thank you. You
9: too. You too, Alex. Take care.
0: So uh, Michelle McQuigg is a news editor with the Canadian Press. And Joita Gupta is the host of The Pulse on AMI-audio. And we want to hear from you guys at home. You know, be sure to uh, reach out. Let us know your thoughts. Chime in on the conversation. Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. On Twitter at Accessible Media. We're going to be back after the break to talk with Karen McGee and have a sports update. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you live on AMI-tv. It's Friday, November 25th, 2022. I'm Alex Smythe, filling in for Dave Brown, who is still away on vacation, but he'll be back next week. Coming up on the second hour of the show, entertainment critic Michael McNeely shares his takes on Jonah Hill's documentary, Stuts. and... Karen McGee, tells you all about Snow Angels, a new snow removal program in Windsor, Ontario. But first, we're going to head to Mike Ross, who has our regional news update.
7: Thank you very much, Alex. We'll begin in British Columbia, where the finance minister is to provide an update today on the province's financial situation. Selena Robinson says the numbers in the quarterly budget update will show an economy continuing to grow despite the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. She says she'll also issue cautions about inflation pressures and rising interest rates. Robinson's update comes a week after the swearing in of new premier David Eby, who has already made several spending announcements, adding up to more more than $1 billion. The Canadian Food Inspection Agency says two more commercial poultry farms in the Fraser Valley have tested positive for avian flu. That brings the number of farms infected to 12 in Abbotsford, Chilliwack and Kent since last Friday. The agency says there's no evidence to suggest that eating cooked poultry or eggs could transmit the virus to humans. Anyone who finds a sick or dead wild bird is encouraged to contact the Canadian Wildlife Health Cooperative. To the prairies, Saskatchewan will soon gain control of the carbon pricing charge that shows up on residents' power bills after coming up with its own carbon pricing system. Premier Scott Moe says He would like to see some of the money go toward producing nuclear energy. But his Saskatchewan party government is still considering its options. Since 2019, a carbon backstop has been placed on Saskatchewan power and their corporation bills to account for its greenhouse gas emissions. The money's been going to the federal government. But starting in January, the money will stay in the province. Alberta's United Conservative Party government says school boards can't require students to wear masks in school or be forced to take classes online. The government says it has made regulatory changes that guarantee students have access to in-person learning and can't be kept out of school over a personal decision to not wear a mask. Last week, the Edmonton Public School Board asked the province whether it could require masks as schools deal with a wave of viral illnesses that is sending thousands of students home sick. Premier Danielle Smith says the change is going to affect immediately and will create an inclusive environment by ensuring personal and family choices are respected. In Ontario Peel Regional Police say they're reviewing how they identify and engage with people who have autism after officers used a stun gun on a nonverbal autistic teen The force says officers used a stun gun on 19-year-old Abdullah Darwich earlier this month after responding to a report of a, quote, suspicious person allegedly trying to enter a vehicle and a house while undressed. Darwich's father says his son left his Mississauga house in shorts and had to be treated in hospital for injuries after the interaction. Police say they told the teen's father that he can file a complaint with the Office of the Independent Police Review Director to have an independent review of police actions. And in the Atlantic region, Nova Scotia Finance Minister Alan McMaster says the province will not use revenue from its fuel tax to help offset the effects of the federal carbon pricing plan. McMaster said earlier this month that the federal government had forbidden the province to cut the tax, but federal officials have since said that's not the case still the minister says he favors targeted cost of living relief and will continue to f- uh, use the fuel tax to fix roads and highways mcmaster says the province is now looking at expanding its heating assistance rebate which currently offers up to 200 dollars for low-income nova scotians who pay for their own heat and those are your top regional headlines going coast to coast across the
0: country thank you very much mike we'll check in with you later for the roundtable discussion but for now, we're going to bring in Brock Richardson for our sports chat. Hey, Brock. Good morning. How are you doing after a a, fill, a fun-filled
6: day of sports? I, am, I had my fill of sports <laughs> yesterday with uh, all the Thanksgiving uh, games. And I have to say, Alex, honestly... I wanted turkey more yesterday than I ever had before because every football game, they kept showing turkey, and it was just yummy, and yeah, it was good times.
0: Well, this was the thing, though. Some of uh, the—because all the NFL games were playing on the American Thanksgiving yesterday. There was three different games, and we'll get into that. But some of the turkeys they were showing, uh, some of them looked better than others. Some of them would look kind of— Oh, like meager and just like a bit overcooked and didn't quite look all that appetizing. But uh, I, I get the sentiment, you know, you're you're just sitting at home watching. It's like, I, w- I want a nice turkey dinner every once in a while. But uh, let's let's get into the games. Like, let's start off with the morning game, which was Buffalo versus Detroit.
6: Uh, yes, it was a interesting game for sure. Uh, the Bills uh, pulled one out 20, 28 to 25. Yesterday, at times, I wondered if the Bills were trying to give that one away. But as it turns out, they uh, they won the game. I would say that Josh Allen looked um, a bit slow to start the game yesterday. I think there's more to that injury than uh, people want to admit. Uh, in the fourth quarter, Josh Allen kind of took um, uh, things on his own and, and, and took control. Uh, the Cowboys actually really did a nice job in keeping themselves in the game until the final quarter when Josh Allen kind of said, no, we're, we're taking this one on. I think this was a uh, big win for Buffalo. However, if you look at uh, the Lions, uh, this was a big loss for them as it pretty well puts them out of playoff contention.
0: Yeah. You know, this was one of those things I, I had called yesterday that maybe this could have been the, the upset watch, unfortunately, Uh, For the Lions, it it, it wasn't. I agree with you. Buffalo—they're not looking like the dominant team we saw earlier on. I know they put up 28 points, which is always a good score to have for for any team. But the fact that it was down to the final four minutes to go, uh, four seconds, sorry, to go ahead in the game against Detroit, which on paper Buffalo should have very easily beat is something there's something to be said for that the other thing I I was reading the stat and I I was blown away is Jamal Williams now has 13 rushing touchdown he's their uh, Detroit's major red Zone threat to just pound the ball in he only trails Barry Sanders uh who had twice had 14 and 16 touchdowns in a season for a running back in Detroit history that is shocking to me we're not done the season yet it, I Is there the potential Jamal Williams could end up the all-time touchdown uh, season holder for Detroit? That is a serious question we have to ponder.
6: Yeah, it is. And he is a very good uh, player. There's no doubt about it. I love watching his game. He knows uh, what he's doing for sure. And yes, I do believe that that could be a record that he could get for sure.
0: Now let's move on to Dallas versus uh, the Giants. Okay, I I kind of admit it, Brock. You know, I I, I was kind of promoting this game a bit more. This was the uh this featured the two teams with the best records on yesterday's uh, slate of games. A bit of a a quieter, not so exciting game, especially in the first half. You know, the Giants had a, a slim lead, and then their offense seemed to kind of go to sleep for um, all the third quarter and most of the fourth quarter. Well, uh, Dallas just kind of woke up and just scored three straight touchdowns on, on drives.
6: Yes. And, uh, it was really, um, a tale of two halves. Like you said, the first half was kind of eh, boring a little bit. And then the Cowboys really turned it on, um, you know, and, and, and did what they needed to do for me. When you have 21 and unanswered points at one point in the, uh, in the game, that's pretty good. For me, Alex, I look at someone like Dak Prescott, and I think he's kind of one of those underrated quarterbacks. I think sometimes people don't look at him as a as a you know a good quarterback. I think there's some lack of trust in 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 Dallas land, and he looked pretty good in the second half. Maybe not so much in the first half, though.
0: Uh, absolutely, I I think you ask anyone on on the national uh, the national uh, TV circuit back when he was trying to get his uh, contract extension, people would not stop talking about how great Dak Prescott is. But I I agree. I think he gets lost in the conversation a bit for a long time. I was very envious seeing all the the Cowboys games and just wishing uh, as a Chicago Bears fan. Oh, if only we could have drafted Dak Prescott. You know, he went so late. We could have easily had him. But that said, now. It looks like our quarterback situation isn't too bad, so I'm um, I'm thankful for that. But that said, I I think Dak Prescott easily is a top ten quarterback in the league. Maybe pushes the mold a bit to get to top seven, top six, depending on who you want to include and uh, how you you evaluate the the QBs around the league. Uh, but let's move on uh, then to our final game, the the evening game between Minnesota and New
6: England which seemed to be the best game of the day, I would argue. This was a back-and-forth game. Um, You know, both teams kind of ran down the field. We got a touchdown. One team would get a field goal. The other team would get a field goal. And it just seemed to be this real good, uh, good game. Mac Jones seemed to really hold himself in yesterday's game. I think sometimes, again, people don't trust him in New England with, with who he, his successor was, of course, in Tom Brady. But he he showed, listen, I, I can hold myself in there with with um, Cousins, and I can, I can do this. But I think Minnesota was the better team and looked like the better team, but definitely the Patriots held themselves in there, and I expected that game to be a landslide for sure.
0: Absolutely. As you mentioned, you know, Mac Jones had career highs for Pass yardage, I think it was like 380-some-odd yards that he threw for, which is great for any quarterback in a game, especially against a top team like Minnesota. Uh, so he he was certainly giving them an uh, opportunity to win, but I think it was that kick return for, for a touchdown after a score that just kind of cemented it. And it's special teams that always seems to be undervalued and underrated until you have – one of these breakthrough plays where you get a kick return for a touchdown, you get a a really good punt return, or you cause a fumble on, on one of those uh, returns. So I I think that was really the story for Minnesota. Uh, Now, Brock, you wanted to preview some of the NHL games that we're going to be seeing over the weekend. So you wanted to start with Calgary and Washington.
6: Yes. So that is a game uh, today. I think, this is a good game. Both Calgary and Washington are, are very good teams. Calgary kind of has a bit of a, you know, some days they look really good. Some days they don't look good at all. So we'll see how they look today against a formidable team in in Washington. But that's a good uh, good opportunity to uh, have some afternoon hockey for you. Um, and then tomorrow is going to be Edmonton Oilers versus New York Rangers, which will be another good game. Edmonton's one of those confusing teams, as we talk about all the time, and so we'll see whether they can uh, get things going in New York and uh, doing well. But those are the two sort of NHL games that I would highlight over the weekend that you might want to circle your calendars and watch.
0: Absolutely. I think both uh, Calgary and Edmonton are a bit of that Jekyll and Hyde. Sometimes you see some really great things, flashes of brilliance, a team coming together, and then other days it's just they can't even – Get out of their zone They're They just give away chances. And and the other team seems like they almost have power plays against those teams. So hopefully, you know, both those uh, Alberta teams start to turn it around and start to get some momentum and consistency in their game. Uh, finally, we want to kind of touch on the World Cup, what people can expect this weekend. But uh, before we do that, I just want to make note the early game today. It was between Iran and Wales, and Iran pulled up a 1-0 upset over Wales. So early on, we, we've seen some some teams that should have won lose to really, you know, surprising teams, especially coming out. Of, oh, it was 2 nothing. I am being corrected in my ear. Thank you, Dan. It was 2 uh, uh for Iran over Wales. So especially coming out of the... These teams from the Middle East, where you know maybe there's not a lot of attention paid to them, they're they're coming and they're holding their home against major teams in this competition.
6: Hey, when you have less pressure on you as a as a team, sometimes that's the reason you need to to kind of put in, together an upset. I think some of these uh, European countries have a lot a lot of pressure put on them, and so that sometimes translates into not good play and then the end result not being what it is and so this to me is the reason why you see a lot of upsets in in tournaments like this is because the teams that should be doing uh better put a little more pressure on their shoulders overall
0: absolutely and we have late the later game today at two o'clock it's going to be the u.s versus england that's going to be a huge game to watch And then on Sunday, we have Canada playing their second game against Croatia. We got about 30 seconds, Brock. Can you kind of give us a a bit of what you hope to see from those games?
6: Uh, What I hope to see in the game today in England and the United States, both are very, very good uh, teams. Um, England looked very good in a 6-2 victory over Wales. And then the United States looked okay in a 1-1 draw. For Canada, I think Canada needs to pick up where they left off and sort of not fall asleep at the end of the first half. Keep the foot on the gas pedal. You need four points in, in the last two games at minimum. So we'd like to see a win here uh, to start. And then hopefully you can uh, you can put it all together for your final game. And we'll see what happens because John Herdman gave some bulletin um, you know, stuff to, for the other team, Croatia, to talk about. As he said, uh, we're going to bleep Croatia. So we'll see what happens with that.
0: Absolutely. And we'll find out what the results are on Monday when we chat again. Brock, thank you so much. Have a great weekend and enjoy some of these great games. I will. Same to you. Yep. That's Brock Richardson, the host of The NutraZone on AMI-audio. We head back to Mike Ross, who has our AMI weather update. Thanks, Alex. It is your AMI National
7: Weather Update from Environment Canada. And we begin in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where it will be mainly cloudy today. Your high is plus one. There will be a wind chill of minus eight. Charlottetown, PEI, a mix of sun and cloud with a high of plus four. The wind chill there, minus six. To St. John, New Brunswick, clouds for the day, about five millimeters of rain this afternoon. Your high is seven degrees. The wind chill this morning, minus seven go to Quebec City. Snow today. Anywhere between 2 and 5 centimeters over the northern sections of Quebec City. The high is plus 1. The wind chill minus 7. In Toronto, cloudy with chance of showers today. You have a high of 8 degrees. Sault Ste. Marie Ontario has some flurries today. Maybe a little bit of rain mixed in there. Expect a temperature steady near plus 2. Brandon, Manitoba mainly sunny with a high of six degrees though as you head out this morning the wind chill feels like minus eight in regina saskatchewan a mix of sun and cloud and a high of eight degrees to lethbridge alberta a mix of sun and cloud today with a high of 12 degrees red deer has mainly sunny skies maybe some flurries or some rain showers this afternoon your high today plus four in whitehorse It'll be mainly cloudy with the temperature steady near minus 10, ten or rather 7. The wind chill is minus 17. To Kelowna, BC, cloudy today. A chance of some rain or snow mixed in there. Maybe some freezing rain this morning. Your high today is plus 4. And in Vancouver, rain ending in the morning. Then cloudy skies. Your high is 9 degrees. And that is your National Weather Report from AMI and Environment Canada.
0: Thank you very much, Mike. We'll check in with you a bit later for the round table. But coming up next, entertainment critic Michael McNeely shares his takes on Jonah Hill's documentary Stuts. But first, here's Canadian press reporter Emily Jovesky with your Morning Business Minute. <music>
5: Canada's main stock index made small but broad-based gains Thursday. Trading volumes were relatively low, while U.S. stock markets closed for the Thanksgiving holiday. Toronto's S&P TSX index was up 62 points at 20,344. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei lost 100 points, closing at 28,283. Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index fell 87 points to 17,574. And our dollars trading overseas this morning at 74.94 cents U.S. Black Friday marks a return to familiar holiday shopping patterns but experts say inflation is weighing on consumers. Many are reluctant to spend unless there's a big sale and are being more selective with what they'll buy. Shoppers are also dipping more into their savings and turning increasingly to buy now pay later services. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Emily Jovesky.
0: Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe, still filling in for Dave Brown. It's Friday, so that means Michael McNeely is going to be joining us from Toronto to talk movies. This time around a documentary that stars and was produced by Jonah Hill called Studs. Hey, Michael, how's it going? Hi, how are you doing?
4: It's nice to see you again.
0: Yeah, it's great to see you again, too, and to talk movies. So you wanted to bring this Netflix documentary, Stutz, forward and talk about it because it it really focuses on something that's of interest to you, mental health. Why did this appeal to you? Well, I think we
4: definitely need to talk about mental health. I think we need to shine a spotlight on it, especially now that it's November. A lot of our friends and family may be having trouble over the holidays and... To the dark times of the winter. And so, I think it's something important to discuss to ensure that everybody feels that they're not alone and that they have somebody to talk to at this time, and um, that there's some lessons and some philosophies and some ideas that are touched on in that that I think would resonate with many of our audience.
0: Now, the namesake of the the documentary, and the subject of the documentary, Phil Stutz. Uh, What can you tell me about him, and why Mm -hmm. did they make a documentary about him?
4: So I think Phil Stutz is known for being a psychotherapist to the stars, in quotation marks, because he actually works with a lot of celebrities, um, including Gwyneth Paltrow and uh, Jonah Hill, who has made this documentary about him. I think what's interesting is that mister Or Doctor Stutz has Parkinson's and he's dealing with that in the form. He also noticed that he has great chemistry with Jonah Hill and they're really they really friends, they really um they really care about each other and it's fascinating to see that between a psychotherapist and his patient so, I think Dr. Stutz is somebody who tells it like it is. He doesn't hold anything back. He swears a lot. Um, he's an older man, so he's seen a lot of life. And through the life experiences, he's gotten some life lessons that he can share with others. And I feel like that's well-earned.
0: And as I, I mentioned, this is uh, a documentary by Jonah Hill. You, you talked about... Uh, Hill is being a a patient of Dr. Stutz. Can you talk a bit about that relationship a bit more and and expand on that?
4: Yes. So I think Jonah Hill is really doing uh, a lot of work here and being vulnerable and showing us what he's going through in terms of his mental health and some of his challenges today. Um, I think at the beginning of the film, he's not quite as vulnerable as he is later on and they do talk about that. They talk about the challenges of being vulnerable. There's a lot of surprises that I will wound for you, but you definitely have to watch the film to get those surprises. Um, it's really about the structure of making the film, about the relationship between you and your psychotherapist. That is fascinating, and that is something that they do talk about in the movie. itself. So, um, I would just say that um, traditionally, It's hard for men to open up about their feelings and about their emotions. And it's very surprising that Jonah Hill is the person that's opening up because we know him from movies like Superbad and those gross-out sexual watching comedies of yesterday. And I'm I'm thinking that he's, he's growing out of that phase, or at least he's made enough money so that he can pick his own projects now, and that he can do his own film, and so in fact, this is made, it's made known that Jonah Hill's been paying, um, Doctor Stutz to make this documentary with him, and they've been working on it at least for two years.
0: And, and as you mentioned, you know, it's it's interesting to see Jonah Hill be vulnerable, be open in this documentary, and and really let himself. Uh, Let audiences see him uh, for who he is. Why do you think it is so difficult or challenging to be open and honest like that?
4: So we can approach that in two different angles. From the psychotherapist's perspective, it's hard to be vulnerable because they're there to provide a service to somebody. For example, we don't really like it when psychotherapists overshare or when they talk more about themselves. But... I think this film showcases that there is an important aspect to sharing a bit of your personality or a bit of your inner self with the patients that you work for. For example, let's say um, you've lost a parent, you've lost a dog, you've lost a loved one. It would be nice maybe if the psychotherapist could share that they have also lost someone. So that's just an example that I've been thinking of. From the patient's perspective, I think it's just difficult to share because you want everything to be okay. You want to put on a false front to show that everyone is, um, in order to show that you're doing fine, that you don't need help. Because I think that's the face that we typically put on every day to the others that perceive us in our society. And so it's hard to actually admit to yourself that, well, things are not necessarily that great. I would go one step further and say that it's harder for celebrities to say that
0: too, because we're used to seeing them live this rich and glamorous yeah. lifestyle, but they they also have challenges just like the rest of us. Absolutely. Well, and as you mentioned, it's like in, in our society, it's it's basically expected that you, you put on that, that face, that. that uh, a uh, uh, disguise of everything is okay, everything is fine, I'm doing fine, but then to open up is, is hard, and if you're a celebrity, if you're already in the spotlight, every move is dissected, it's even harder. Is there, is there lessons that can be learned from Dr. Stutz in this documentary? Yes, so I think what I would do is start by saying that Dr. Stutz is known for using cue cards, and he draws pictures on the cue cards
4: and gives them to his patients so that they can take home and they can actually, you know, conceptualize some of the stuff that he's teaching them. I think that's amazing. And what's interesting now is that he has Parkinson's, which I mentioned, and so when he draws these these cue cards, the, the pictures are not as smooth as they used to be, but I think that's a life lesson in life itself um, and forgive me for saying this, but Dr. Stutz says that there's a turd inside every great idea or every great accomplishment or everything that we do. So there's something that's not perfect. And we just need to embrace the imperfections within
0: ourselves. No, I, I cannot summarize
4: even 1% of what Dr. Stutz says. Because he himself says that there's much more that he's able to teach than this movie actually provides for. And let's be fair that this is a movie, it's an hour and a half. So we're not going to get, you know, over 60 hours of psychotherapy that we probably couldn't afford. Um, But we we can start to think about some of these ideas and start working on some of these um, things that the doctor believes in.
0: Absolutely. Now, as we mentioned at the top, like this is a a subject matter that is uh, very uh, important to you. Are there other films or or movies that uh, tackle the same issue of mental health that you would recommend? Well, that's a good question. I think there's still much more that can be explored in this area. I don't think there's
4: a lot of movies that are about the relationship between patients and therapists. Although I think that, that would be something to start nailing down on. So I would start by recommending Go Interrupted, which deals with a lot of um, a lot of mental health issues relating to women. I do believe that go interrupted is the better version of one Flew for the cuckoo's nest. It's much more relatable. And All the stars are still stars today, which is amazing when you're thinking about a movie that was over 20 years old. Um, I would also mention that uh, the film, it's kind of a funny story. I think that's what Zach Galifianakis, I can't pronounce his last name. Um, (laughs) Zach Galifianakis, yes. Thank you. Um, And I think that's just a great movie that's open about mental health and saying, hey, you're in a mental institution, Let's just get used to it. We'll spend some time together, and you'll get better afterwards. Um, I think I think mental health is just a hot topic, and so we need to keep working on that.
0: Now, uh, finally, I, I want to get your, your review on, on this movie. How would you rate it? I would rate it 8 out of 10 at the moment
4: again like we talked about uh two weeks ago when we talked about the documentary on gratitude um and ironically enough there's stuff about gratitude in this documentary that would probably have been in the other documentary as well but there's just lots of ideas you need time to to think about them you need time to have that cycle therapy more or less to go home and to reflect and Unfortunately, when you watching a movie like this one, you don't necessarily have the time at the moment. So it would be something that I would return to, you know, down the road, and maybe talk to AMI about my feelings about it in a year's time or whenever we do the yearly roundup. Finally, I would say that Dr. Stutz looks like Billy Bob Thornton 100%. So I'm calling it right now. I'm going to say that they're going to do a biopic and Dr. Stutz, and to Papa probably get his celebrity patients to do cameos. But I think Billy Bob Thornton would be perfect, because he not only looks like Stutz, he acts like Stutz, um, with his sarcasm and his humor and all that kind of stuff.
0: You're, you're already casting the the film remake, Michael. That's that's a sign that it's a, a something worth coming back to. Thank you so much for, for bringing this forward and chatting with me today about it. Yes, thank you. That's Michael McNeely with his review of the documentary Stutz, directed by Jonah Hill. The film is available on Netflix and is rated R. We'll be back after this moment. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Back to now with Jay Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. It's time for our roundtable discussion, so I'm going to bring in Mike Ross, Ramia Muthan, and Nizreen Abdel-Majid with Mike sharing up another delicious topic for us to dive into. Mike, take it away. Do we have Mike? I'm assuming we don't have Mike at the moment so we will not be throwing it to him for a delicious conversation but in the meantime why don't I bring in Ramia Muthan and Nazreen Abdelmijin. Hi Ramia, how are you doing? Hey Alex doing good. That's good. Nazreen how are you doing?
10: Pretty good pretty good it's Friday happy Friday.
0: Happy Friday indeed. So you know while we wait for for mike to connect up and uh why don't we dive into what he wanted to discuss so he he's going to a dinner party tonight he really wanted to kind of pick our brain a bit about the dinner party kind of set up the the uh what you guys like don't like are you guys big fans of dinner parties to begin with because for me i i can get behind a good dinner party i can enjoy uh a nice group of, of people getting together. Now, I haven't done it so much during COVID, obviously. You know, it's uh, mm-hmm. you really have to uh, pick and choose who you're, you're spending your time around. But before the pandemic, I was all over dinner parties. It was one of my favorite get-togethers because there's food, there's drinks, there's people, but there's also some sort of order to it. It's not just kind of getting together, and you, you want to make sure there's a good spread. So, Rami, I'll start with you. Are you, are you a fan of, of the dinner party get-together?
2: So I think it is definitely a specific vibe for a particular kind of my friend group. Like, I can't imagine all my friends doing dinner parties because it feels a, li- a bit more formal. You know, maybe you, you invite <laughs> only people who are, like, into that vibe. But anyway, I do enjoy dinner parties few and far beyond, though. Like, not right. as often as I do, you know, chill game nights or... Um, you know, going out for bar nights or cocktails like that kind of thing is more my vibe. Karaoke nights actually more do more of those than anything else. Uh, but dinner parties, not necessarily.
0: I, I will say that uh, a lot of my dinner parties, especially hosted at one of my uh, friends' places, they had a karaoke machine. So often dinner parties turned into karaoke night in the same vein. So you That's eat the first. Best. Exactly. You get the good good spread, good food get some good drinks, and then you start singing and uh, enjoying yourself. Uh, Nisreen, what about you? Are you a big fan of the dinner party?
10: I love some uh, karaoke nights. That's for sure. (laughs) I need to join you for that. Uh, Yeah, dinner parties are a thing. Yeah. Um, So for us, we love hosting, like my mom and I for sure. We love hosting people and uh, just being a good hostess. I love just uh, prepping good appetizers and and things like that planning is just our thing um i love going to dinner parties but most of the time it's just us planning everybody just coming over we're the one organizing we're the ones organizing everything i'm the monica in the friends (laughs) tv show um that's what that's how i would describe myself but yeah delicious stuff all around
0: well, we now have Mike Ross. So why don't we bring him in, Mike? I, I've asked the yeah, others. Some bit mixed on on uh, dinner parties. Ramya prefers more karaoke. Uh, Nisreen enjoys hosting. But what about you, Mike? Are you a big fan of the dinner party?
7: Yeah, I don't mind. Um, it's been a while since mm-hmm. we've been to one, so that'll be uh, that'll be interesting. Uh, it is a potluck type thing, so everybody's been assigned. Um, a course for the meal so we've been uh we've got the appetizers but i'm just wondering uh if anybody has sort of a go-to course that when they're faced with a, that sort of potluck situation because there's always the one person like i don't know about you guys but in my circle of friends there's always the one person who's like oh i'll bring chips yep oh, i'll bring oh, yeah. the snacks like it's <laughs> the easy thing to just pick up at the store i
2: feel or, like that's random or the I was gonna say that's. I feel a lot of judgment right now. I offer chips and wine.
0: I mean, (laughs) the wine is a key uh, key uh, (laughs) point of that. Yeah, you're you're stepping
7: up with the wine. Like, let's let's be honest.
0: You're stepping up.
7: Um, But it's like the the the, I wonder about. You know, do, do you guys sort of? get a little judgy in your own minds about people who bring say a pre-made dessert, something that they didn't make themselves or appetizers. Maybe they went to M M&M and M and bought uh, pre-made appetizers that just get thrown into the oven and, and, and prepared or, or, you know, is it just sort of the old, it's the thought that counts.
0: I will say that I don't mind if someone goes to the store and uh, buy something to bring it. I I'm a hundred percent fine with that. I get a bit judgy with the chips, especially because it's like it's always the same people, you know, it's always the like the low effort into oh, like yeah, they want to get together, they want to enjoy it. But it's like oh, well, you know, I spent a few hours putting this together, or so and so went and and bought this big uh, tray of food, or or whatnot, and then oh, you 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 spent a couple bucks on on chips, and I the only reason I I am able to judge is I I know. Their situation, I, I'm, uh, we're very good friends, so it's like I, I know there's not necessarily like a financial issue or anything else behind that. It's just that's their personality. So for me, it's that I, I do get a bit judgy, and it's also kind of unfortunate to hear from, um, from your experience, Mike, that it doesn't seem to change as you get older. It still same, uh, seems to be the same.
2: Okay, well. I'll just uh, jump in and (laughs) defend myself. I I was just going to say, on behalf of everybody who brings chips to the table, uh, you can make a chip thing a really nice situation, okay, Mm -hmm. Nazreen? So, like, you know, chips and salsa. Maybe you went out and made like a whole nacho plate because I actually do love making nachos. Um, The other thing is, I love bringing dessert to any kind of party or dinner but I don't want to be the one making dessert because that'll just be not good. So, <laughs> what I end up doing is going to like um, you know, a really great bakery near me or somewhere where that that I I love the dessert from and then buy proper dessert, not like the frozen section at Metro, um, but a proper, really really nice, enjoyable dessert and it's always a nice excuse to bring. Cake right. To and this, yeah, this heard, ring will heard, give me you...
7: Oh, I just think that, that like, not everybody can uh, or has the, the culinary talent to do it yes. or the confidence to do it. So I'm, so I'm of the mind of, you know, it's a thought that counts. At least you're bringing something, you're contributing something. And if yeah. somebody ends up making something extraordinary, then that's above and beyond. And, you know, I admire them for that because I would admire any, any other talent that they have.
0: That's very fair. Nisreen, I'll give you the last word on this one.
10: Yeah, so I don't judge people for bringing pre-made stuff. You know, if you go to a grocery store, grab something really quickly, it's no problem because not everybody has the time or uh, the patience, I guess, to make something. It's fine. The it's the thought that counts. However, it's when people don't offer to bring anything. I mean, yeah, potluck, but they don't say, "Okay, I'll bring this. I'll bring that." They'll just bring whatever, maybe like a drink or two, and call it a day. That's when I lose respect for people. But I do have an idea for you, Mike, really quickly. Charcuterie board. That's, you can never go so wrong good. with that. That's my yeah. go-to. Yeah. That's my go-to. You can add any cheese, crackers, all the cheese in the world. There's fruits. There's vegetables. Any meat you want. It's really good and really easy.
7: Well, especially that the the main course tomorrow night is lasagna. So I was thinking of going like Italian- I was thinking like some prosciutto, some melon, uh, maybe throw in some olives there. A lot of people like the olive. I'm not a fan, but some people really like that. But, yeah, that's always a big hit.
0: Amazing. Okay, well, we have to unfortunately end the conversation there. Mike, thank you for for struggling through and and, uh, bringing this conversation forward. We appreciate it. Nisreen, have a a wonderful weekend as well. Ramya, before we let you go, I want you to quickly run through what folks can expect from this episode of uh, Kelly & Co.
2: Absolutely. It's the end of an era, Alex, because Facebook is taking off religion and your address and politics fields off your user profile. So talking about that with John Beeler of the app show or sorry, of Get Connected. If you're looking forward to live theater, VocalEye is offering some uh, interesting lineups for you there in Vancouver. So we're getting a list of that with Sylvie Fickett. And we're talking about Kobo Reader and Kobo Plus with Ryan Hui on the Chatty Bookshelf. It's now available in Canada for audiobook listening. He's going to tell us why that's exciting.
0: Amazing. Ramya, thank you so much. Have a great weekend, and we'll check in with you next week. You too, Alex. Okay, that's Ramya Muthan, uh, co-host of Kelly & Company. And coming up next, Karen McGee tells us all about Snow Angels, a new snow removal program in Windsor, Ontario. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Good morning and welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-TV. I'm Alex Mike, filling in for Dave. So it's Friday and it's the end of the week, but every few days we connect with AMI staffers from across the country to find out what's happening in their regions. And today we are joined by uh, content development specialist Karen McGee, who joins us from her home in Morrison, Ontario. Good morning there, uh, Karen. How are you doing?
11: I'm doing very well. Obviously, this week, you saved the best for last.
0: Uh, obviously. I mean, we had to change the whole schedule around and everything. Just don't let, uh, um, don't let Dave David. I'm,
11: I'm here for you, Alex. I'm here
0: okay. for you. Okay. Okay. Uh, so, Karen, we only have a few minutes left in the show, but you have a couple of really important uh, uh, kind of topics that you want to highlight. So let's start with uh, Stephen o- Okenge. Can you tell me a bit about him and his story?
11: So Stephen attended the Notre Dame High School here in Ottawa and played basketball at a top flight academy in the city. His goal was to play uh, university ball in the States. His former coaches describe him as a hardworking and very passionate about baseball. Um, The 19-year-old was enrolled in York University in Nebraska, where um, on the morning of October 23rd, he was in a car accident driving home from a party. He wasn't driving. He was not wearing a seatbelt. And the car in which he was a passenger veered off the road. Um, crashed into a highway sign and slammed into a concrete culvert. He suffered fractures to three cervical vertebrae. Um, He's been left with no feeling or movement below his shoulders. The police think the driver, who was a fellow teammate, fell asleep at the wheel. Um, The driver was able to walk away from this accident. And his brother told us, Stephen's brother told the Ottawa citizen that he's really struggling. Stephen's really struggling to come to terms with the fact that his life has forever changed, as I think most people would be in that situation.
0: Absolutely. You know, it's such a a tragic situation and just such a a life altering thing that he's he now has to come to grips with. Now, is he where is he uh, currently and and what is his uh, family trying to do to bring him back home?
11: So they're trying to bring him back to Nepean. Um, He's still in Nebraska at the hospital there. He's recently been taken off the ventilator and he's going to be moving to a rehab facility there. Um, the university is paying for his initial hospital expenses. I guess when you're a university student, you get um, health health care with that. Um, there, But there's a lot of costs. The cost for his family to travel to be with them, there's going to be rehab therapy moving forward, home renovations here in Ottawa, and specialized medical equipment they'll need at home. That's going to cost a lot of money. They're trying to work on bringing him back to Nepean, like I said, um, And his parents live there. They just, they want to be able to bring him home and be with family. And again, it costs a lot to spend time in the States like that.
0: Absolutely. Now, uh, is there a way that uh, folks at home can help support and help uh, the family raise some funds?
11: There are a couple of ways. A GoFundMe page has been set up for the family. Everybody sets up a GoFundMe page nowadays, don't they? Um, They've raised close to 140,000 U.S. so far. And on December 1st, and to me, this what's hap- This fundraiser they're having on December 1st really tells me how well he was respected here in Ottawa for his basketball playing and the type of person he was. His former high school and Canada Top Flight Academy are hosting a fundraiser for him at Notre Dame High School. And it's called Slam for Steph. It's going to feature an exhibition game, slam dunk competition, silent auction, food, door prizes, and more. So if you want to help out, you can get tickets at eventbrite.ca. But it, it says a lot about somebody when your former teammates gather around like that to
0: help yeah. out. Absolutely. Now, uh, moving on, shifting gears a bit, you you have another story for us—one that's a, a a bit lighter. It, it, it's the Snow Angels program. So, can you tell us a bit about what Snow Angels is?
11: So, it's not where you go lie in the snow and move your arms and legs and make an angel. This is a program where that, that's set up in Windsor, Ontario, where. Snow Angel program matches up volunteers to shovel snow for people who might not be able to do it for themselves, whether it's because of disability or because they're senior citizens or you know, they, they aren't able to do it for themselves. For the volunteers, it's a great way to get some exercise. And in the winter, for students in high school to get their volunteer hours. Now, I'm not sure if this is the case in other provinces, but here in Ontario, you need to get 40 hours of volunteer work in order to graduate from high school. I think they have a similar program in BC, but I don't know about any other provinces. So if they have high school students who need volunteer work. This is a great way
0: to do it. Absolutely. Just,
11: just for reference, in Windsor they get over fifty inches of snow a year, so that's a yeah. lot.
0: Yeah. That's a lot and, to and, shovel. Well, and it's also too. It's it's how uh, it's positioned with the Detroit River and, and how the snows come in. I mean, that whole uh uh south lake effect. the 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 whole the whole lake effect. Like I mean, that area was just hammered uh, recently with, with snowfall. So, you know, how can locals find out if there's a, a program around them?
11: So in Windsor, you can call 311 and they'll set you up and point you in the right direction. So other areas like the City of Ottawa have programs that are similar. Um, they actually are called Snow Angel programs in a lot of places, but they might have other names. You can go to the website, ottawa.ca, to find out more about it there. Um, unfortunately, for like programs like this, the number of people who need help usually outnumbers the people who volunteer. So please look in your area to see. I think even Morseburg has one here um, where you can help out people who might need snow. I have my own snow angel, my neighbor, a couple of doors down, has got a big tractor with like a big uh, shovely thing on it. Wow. I am not very good <laughs> at this shovely thing, What's the backhoe type thing where if we got a lot of snow at the end of the driveway, if he beat, if he gets out first, he'll come and do the end of my driveway for me, which I really appreciate.
0: Yeah. That's awesome. Because the thing is too, it's like, even, you know, even if there's folks who may not have traditionally relied on, on help from others when it comes to sh- uh, shoveling snow and stuff, when when you have a heavy snowfall, it can be so st- stressful and and straining on on even the the most in shape people, and we see it every year as people have major health problems when they're trying to shovel. So it, it's always a a great program to to have this and and have volunteers going around making sure that people who need need help and need assistance when it comes to shoveling snow get it. So thank you so much for for bringing that uh, forward to me, Karen. Now. Before we let you go, I want to ask you our poll question uh, today. Are are you planning on doing any Black Friday shopping today?
11: I am, and I I think my husband's nearby listening, so I can't say what I'm looking for because his birthday is coming up in December,
0: and I want to get him
11: something that I've been looking for and I've kind of had in my Amazon basket for a while, and I'm waiting for that little Alexa notification that it's gone on sale and it hasn't yet, so I'm hoping that today or, or Monday maybe, we'll see. I wish yeah. I could say what it was because I need some <laughs>
0: advice. <laughs> well, just know that if you're looking for something specific, the best thing you can do is look online, compare prices in other places because uh, there may be a good deal in one one store or one website that's not uh, the same everywhere. So that would be my piece of gen- general advice to you and the folks at home uh, when it comes to Black Friday shopping. Karen, thank you so much for stopping by.
11: No problem. That's great advice. Thanks. Have a great weekend, Alex.
0: Yeah, you too. Can- Karen McGee is AMI's Regional Content Specialist for Central Canada, and she reached us from her home in Morrisburg, Ontario. Coming up Monday on Now with Dave Brown, community reporter Elizabeth Moeller tells us about the uh, this year's David C. Onley Award for Leadership in Accessibility. That's Now with Dave Brown, 9 a.m. Eastern on AMI-tv. I, I want to thank our guest for today, we had Jawita Gupta and Michelle uh, McQuig, who were on our news panel. We had a great conversation with that. Michael McNeely shared his thoughts on Stutz, the documentary on Netflix. And Karen McGee brought us those great stories from the region. So thank you so much for all of you chiming in and bringing your stories. And thank you for Mike Ross who stepped in while Dave's been away filling my shoes while I filled Dave's shoes. And we also need to thank the rest of the team here on Now with Dave Brown. Obviously, we like to thank our host, Dave Brown. He was off this week, but he always does so much on the show. I also want to thank Brock Richardson, our sports reporter. He always brings the great insight, the great stories for our sports chat. Our senior show producer, Andrika Delanerle, does so much behind the scenes. You never know what the producer does, but just know... They're the glue that holds everything together. Our TV technical producer, Bruce Blakerian, who's always putting out fires behind the scenes on this show. We couldn't do it without him. We have our producers, Paul Daniel, who you heard from yesterday, and Marianne Dion jones Production team, Daniel Panamondo, who's working in audio today, Eliza Rocco, and Kingsley Juco. We couldn't do it without any of these people. They do so much, and it's just this show comes together because all of them are pulling the strings and making it work. That's it for this week. Have a great weekend. I'll see you on Monday on Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv.